Welcome to the Beth and Kelly Show, a weekly Facebook Live conversation between Beth Fortune and Kelly Klingen. That's me. And we've made it into a podcast. Beth Fortune currently serves as Education Director at Wintergrass, the National American String Teachers Association Board, and Chair of the National Council for Orchestral Education. I currently serve as Education Director at Jazz Ed the Washington president at Jazz Education Network and Jazz Curriculum Officer for Washington Music Educators Association. We have a platform and we really want to leverage it for positive change. Please hit us up. Let's have a conversation and uh, let's move our practice as music educators forward. You're way impressive. Mind blowing. You guys are VIP, okay? Uh, we are kicking off this Friday of the Beth and Kelly show with Riley Mulherker and Willem DeCook of Seattle, Washington, uh, trumpet and trombone, half of the Westerlies, also um, went through the Washington Garfield pipeline, of which Beth and I are very familiar, connections at Seattle Jazz Ed, and our friends. It's fantastic. And uh, that's the best part. yeah, that's the best part. Um, maybe you dudes could give us just a little introduction on your own. Um, it can be whatever you want, but what I'm especially thinking about is how different both of your path to getting that instrument in your hand and finding it to be like, this is the thing I'm going to do for my life. You both have very different stories, even though you now sit in the same ensemble from the same school in the same city. But you don't have to talk about that. <laughs> On the band, we always go in score order, so. Okay, Riley. I was gonna do some, some sort of joke where I introduce Willem because we know each other so well by now. It was the year 1992, the city was Eugene, Oregon, and Willem was born. Uh, but no, we do, we, we, we did come to music in very different ways. Um, if I go first, I guess my introduction, well, to music was really, uh, I owe it to my parents because they always had music in the home and there was a piano in the house, which was huge. We had a friend who would come over and lead like the whole neighborhood and sing-alongs on Sunday afternoons. So like music was introduced to me as this like communal thing that people do together. And it wasn't as much, performative as it was communal um so and then charming. i want to do that it's great okay. highly awesome. recommend it um and then in a similar spirit i got to an age where my babysitters were playing in the jazz band at garfield high school so they were like rock stars to me and again i think like there's something about the big band that is very communal and very cool and so that was introduced to me as like this thing that people do together and obviously have a great time doing. And I got really, really like addicted to the, I mean, it sounds corny, but addicted to the feeling of swing. I, at that time was like seven years old mm -hmm. and I was obsessed with rap music and I was obsessed with like thirties big band music. And I, you know, <laughs> Uh, Ken Burns jazz series had come on PBS. So mm -hmm. I'd seen that multiple, multiple times because I taped it on VHS and, um, you know, had gotten started to get some records from my older brother who mm -hmm. was at Washington Middle School at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, the teacher there, Mr. Nat, would give him CDs to take home. I would take those CDs. So I, I was like, you know, probably more fluent in Basie repertoire then than I am now because I was just like listening, mm -hmm. listening, listening. Um, and then finally was able to get a trumpet, begged my parents for one, got one when I was eight years old and started, uh, in earnest then. Um, but meanwhile, Willem has an amazing story as to how he came it's into the best Willem's, the life of the trombone. Willem's coming to trombone story is something that I do on a regular basis. Like it was so great that I've implemented it into my life. Go oh, ahead. I gotta hear that. I think I know the story, but I'm gonna let him tell it. Yeah. Well, now it's been pumped up so much. I hope I don't make it fall flat. 
but I, I uh, yeah, I didn't come from such a musical household. My mom has always been in arts administration and like singing choirs as a as a, a kid, a high school kid. But uh, there, it's not like we had jazz on all the time at my house. So I I came from it from this very like it was sort of by chance that I fell into it. Um, and as the story goes, it was uh, an October day at Washington Middle School, circa it was 2004. And I was, you know, in sixth grade standing at my locker in the science hallway. Mm -hmm. If you can remember, that's the hallway that, you know, runs north, south, but it's on the, the east side of the school on the upper floor. And I knew who Mr. Nat was, Kelly's predecessor at, at Washington, just because he was sort of, you know, all of my friends played in band. And we'll probably talk about this later. I know before the show, we were sort of talking about uh well, we'll dig into it, but the, 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 the peer group stuff that goes into music making uh, at school. So all of my friends were in band, but I wasn't. And so I was just standing in the hall, like chatting with one of, one of my friends after class, putting stuff in our lockers. And Mr. Nat, whom I, I knew who he was, but I, I had never spoken to him in my life. He approached us in the hall and pointed at me and said, trombone. Uh, and I said, okay. <laughs> I need to ask my mom first. And my mom happened to be volunteering in the library that day. I don't know why I thought I needed to ask her permission. I was clearly like a very good, like rule abiding student, you know? So we walked over to the library, me and Mr. Nat, oh my God. By my side, and went and like asked my mom permission for me to play trombone. She was like, yeah, do whatever you want. You know, I don't care, but <laughs> I mean, she cared. My mom cared, but she cared. I went home with a trombone in my hands that day, and uh, yeah, the rest is history. That's the greatest. So both Kelly and I have taken that playbook big time. Big from, time. From it clearly Nat. works. Totally. Okay. I mean, Has I, it worked for the two of you? Like, you're, like yes. Beth, you're probably like viola to like every other person you oh, see. Yeah. I mean, even at Ballard High School, I'll be standing in the you know the gym hallway, and I'll be like violin right. you know to rando kid walking down the hall <laughs> i get some of them <laughs> yeah. and i've learned over time that i don't have success with the bob nat delivery system it's not super on brand for kelly i'll do more of a you know uh i've been observing you hanging out with your friends here um, they're all students of mine and, um, I've just really noticed in the way that you talk and carry yourself that you have really exceptional time. And I think that you would be very successful as a bass player. And I'd like to help you make that happen. Kind of a thing. Yeah. You took more of like a voyeuristic approach. Like I've, I've been watching you from afar. You know, I, I know as the professional here that you will be successful at this. Let me support you in this dream for your life. It's about to change. Let's take a walk into this classroom. I'm going to hand it to you. And then you're going to go learn how to play it. And I'm going to teach you. We're going to do it together. Let's go. You know, Kelly, I'm going to call you out right now because the, I can't plan, wait. the plan from the beginning was that yeah. he was actually going to be a bassist. I know. I know. So I'm getting, that, that was kind of the plan. We were right. going to, you were going to hand it <clears throat> to me. That was the plan. And I'm on blast for sure. That's fair. Um, Meep, uh, because both of her parents, you know, play in this Mexican Bonda, she believed I, I no one told her this she just believed and said out loud one day that when she turned five she would become a mexican and start playing the tuba i remember That's that quote. i remember quote. that and so obviously when she turned five she did not become a mexican but i did get her a tuba and she played it for a short time and then she uh, played bass in a jazz ed summer camp. And she really liked that also. And she went to school with those two instruments as options. And she came home with a trombone. 
I don't know what occurred in that one hour of time, but she has since decided on her own that she would be a trombonist and there is simply nothing I can do about it. Well, since we're talking about all the deep connections between us, it may have something to do with the fact that I babysat Meep, your daughter, from yes. folks don't know, I babysat Meep when she was yes a baby so maybe i might have like whispered some trombone thoughts and i remember that there was a time when riley was babysitting me as well i think there was one evening just one evening maybe i i just i remember more all the hard labor will and i were putting in oh yeah there was a lot of gravel more than the babysitting yeah we were doing serious gravel work serious but but riley you know what is interesting is how you mentioned that the the kids who like the older kids that were babysitting you when you were a little kid they were all in the jazz band at garfield they were your rock i know a similar story from kelly uh, dreaming about mark taylor who for taylor yes of course for people out there that don't know mark taylor he's uh an incredible incredible professional jazz saxophonist who lives here grew up and went to Roosevelt and, and was my neighbor next yeah. door growing up. I didn't know that. Wow. Yes. And his sisters were my babysitters. So the soundtrack of it. my childhood is Mark Taylor practicing. Lucky you. That, I know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, all of this, all of this conversation, which is delightful, by the way, it's delightful <laughs> is really telling me that in 15 minutes of time four people we haven't talked to this group of four people in years if ever this you know this configuration of humans and we naturally go to talking about times where we have connections people that we share in common um stories about how music has touched us um uh, it all rings of community and generations um, of people knowing each other and how that and how we're all connected musically in that way. And, and not one time did I hear anyone say that these were at nationally award winning schools or, you know, that's why they were the rock stars because they got the solo award. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me because on my number one priority of things I want to unpack with you gents is um, my feeling that competition in school music has gone too far. And, uh, and my also knowing that I don't think you guys agree at all. <laughs> and I would love to really talk about that because, um, and I want you to share what you think the value of competition is for sure. And I just want to point out though, that in 15 minutes of time, all we talked about were like funny stories of community and people we share and just musicness. And what made you love music? in the long run, like for the, the long game, you know? So let's roll that into competition. Who feels like they really want to say something? <laughs> well, I don't, I'm sure we actually agree on most things. Maybe we don't, but the, the when I think of music competition mm. and I think of my, about my experience in it, mm-hmm. I always think of it in the tradition of jazz big bands that were competitive right were very competitive Mm -hmm. um in i I was just doing a talk a couple nights ago uh where willem was generously one of the only people (laughs) to listen to but i was talking about (laughs) the roseland ballroom it's not just competition we should we show up for each other you know years in the future we got to have each other's backs even when i'm the only person in the zoom lecture (laughs) webinar you know (laughs) Um, but I was, I was talking about the history of the big band and it's yeah. like in the early big band there was Fletcher Henderson's band they were playing in New York and this other band led by a guy named Gene Goldcat came and they had a battle and the out-of-towners won and it was just, you know everyone loved each other the two bands loved each other and inspired each other and talked about that night for decades to come 
Mm-hmm. And it's a part of the lore. Eventually the band split up and all those musicians ended up playing with each other in different configurations. Then you had places like the Savoy Ballroom where every night there was two bands. There was one band on each side of the room and you know there was a house band and there was a visiting band and they were always going at each other. Um, and so you have the spirit within the band of trying to be like holding each other accountable to be the best you can be so that you can really like shine and do your best and try to outdo the other band without getting into like the thing you might see at a high school basketball game where like all these fans are booing the other team. Right. Like that has never existed um, in the realm okay. of music. Okay. But maybe not. Here's what I wonder. First of all, well, Beth looks like she's really ready to say something. Um, maybe, hopefully we're about to say the same you thing. Might, you might be. I'm just thinking, uh, I mean, this makes me go in a lot of directions, but number one, what was the rubric then for deciding which band won the battle? And what were the stakes to that? Like, what came with it? Because the way we're using competition now for bands is not the same as then, right? Now we've got like this panel of qualified adjudicators and who decides who's qualified, um, uh, who decides what is winning, because I don't know what the rubric was back then. Was it applause? Was it who was dancing the most? Right. Um, It was probably both of those things and the respect of the other band. But that's not what it is now. Like I could get on board with the idea of competition if it was just like who made the audience feel like have the most whatever. That's not what we're doing. We've like, we've institutionalized it so much and the stakes attached to it. Like now you're, you're a good teacher because your band got the top place. And, uh, and I don't want to have this kid solo because we won't get the score that we need to get this right. I mean, there's so much more. It's not the same. So I think well, it's and also, and, and, to say. And also, that, I was that, talking about. I, I, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, but I was talking go. about. I was talking about in a professional context, which right. is also different than the goals of an educational context. Absolutely. And yeah. and what the purpose of music education is, and and what that can provide. So those are different. You know. I come at it thinking about how wonderful the tradition of big band is and how competition was a part of the tradition of big band. And now big band is so much an institutionalized educational thing rather than a professional thing, because economically it's not possible for big bands to exist um, outside of educational institutions for the most part. Um, So yeah, that only, that only further complicates it and muddies exactly what we're talking about. It's um, it's interesting about you know the institutionalization of these forms of ensembles and how kind of they've been taken on by education and that's now where they live. And that's it, pretty much, you know. Where they live like Uh, a museum or something. Right, I'm thinking concert band. Um, I'm a little bit, I I wonder about symphonies um, because symphonies tend to exist, um, but, and we tend to have orchestras in schools, but on the competition thing, Let's, let's, let's get deep into this. Um, as educators, Kelly and I have been the people who are on like the um, observation end of <laughs> when a student or a group, and it, it's, it's definitely like a pervasive feeling within a group, when a student or a group perceives that they did not do well because they did not win, the toxicity that um, seeps through the ensemble is absolutely deadly. Um, so I think like when, a, I sometimes think when a group is on this winning streak and like a group is constantly winning and constantly getting accolades and constantly 
being called out for being perfect. Um, that group is really great at supporting each other and being like comrades and what have you. But when the group doesn't win or when the group doesn't get the level of achievement that they thought that they would be getting or wanted to get or whatever, um, the toxicity is so per pervasive. Um, and that's, you know, that's my perception as an, a music educator and it like 94, 95 Garfield always won those years, Tom Marriott, Dave Marriott, um, those years. And I remember sitting in the audience with my, you know, the older students in the band and it just felt so dark and being like, God, we played great. That was so fun. And everyone around, like the older people who I was learning, you know, from what we should, what we're about, were just like mad, oh, you know, some people saying we should have won or it's because we did this song and like, oh okay and then when I'm older 96 97 and we're winning everything and uh then being like yeah we're the best and yeah. then getting to college and no one cared right no one cared we were the only ones that cared <laughs> I don't know I'm not sure that I was enhanced by it it's amazing how high the, the, the high is and how low the low is when it comes to that competitional um, track that at least Kelly and I have existed in um, as music educators and Kelly as a, a teenager um, uh, throughout your, you know, our careers. What do you guys think about that? I wanna hear what you have to say. I guess what I'll say, I mean, yeah, there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. So I, I, I'll just speak from my personal experience sure. as Kelly spoke to hers. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I think I would have never gotten as deeply involved in music in the first place if the peer group that was psyched about the band program and specifically the big band, right? Like the jazz band at Washington Middle School uh if that wasn't in existence right so like even just removing the competition for the picture for a second the reason that i was psyched about it was because like all of my best friends were doing it and we had a great time doing it in the band room right but i also wonder i think a lot of that was it was really easy to have like a shared common goal and especially for like an adolescent brain like it's a very easy black and white world to be like there are winners and there are losers. And if we practice this way and apply ourselves in the way that a sports team might, um, it's going to feel really good to win. And it did, you know, like, and I, and I think there was part of it that like really tapped into my adolescent self that got me, I enjoyed the competition aspect of it. And also like, as a disclaimer, I am like the walking embodiment of, of privilege of all forms, right? So like, I, I acknowledge that like, I come into it from a certain perspective there, but I, I really enjoyed the competitive aspect. Um, but then I think there also is this sort of like darker, top, more toxic underbelly to it, where like, if you only learn to measure yourself as a musician by that certain specific metric, right? Like one, that doesn't get delivered it can have pretty punishing uh repercussions and i think i really struggled in college because of that you know like i had been so used to being like big, big fish small pond or like coming from this great program and like because we came from this program and this lineage like we all were inherently great um and then when i came to new york and went to school i was like you know okay a lot of people can play and i need to apply myself and work in a certain way uh but I, I think if i i need to give a lot of credit to like my i had a lot of mentors who were very much 
about the competition, you know, but I also had mentors and I like give credit to Wayne Horvitz here, who was a big teacher of mine who like very much does not measure musicianship by that metric. And I think it was like a healthy, healthy dose of that combined with the discipline and rigor that came from the competitive side of things that has like allowed me to thrive as a musician now. Right. And I think like obviously too much of one or, or the other, um, and not to say that Wayne isn't about discipline and rigor and sounded great. He is. Uh, but um, yeah, like I, I think it's good to have entry point, like multiple entry points for multiple different types of personalities and for, for everyone to feel like that's okay. You know, like if you want to play the most virtuosically and be measured by a certain metric, like if that's a motivator for you to sound great, I think that's awesome, you know, but I think there are other students and just thinking about that, you know, from an education, music education perspective, there are other students for whom the sports team rigor competition is actually a really big turnoff. And, and when we don't create entry points for them to also get engaged, we're missing out on a lot of really great untapped musicality and creativity. Um, so, I, yeah, I just wonder how you can, like, keep, keep the sense of discipline and engagement that came with the competitive side but also mm -hmm. like foster a sense of creativity and camaraderie which I, I think you know Riley was describing even in those you know when you think back to the early big band era and he's much more of an expert than I but like there was a real sense of camaraderie there right everyone would hang after the gig and no one <clears throat> it's not like you know no one thought they were ab abominable musicians because they got cut by Coleman Hawkins or whatever it was, you know? Right, I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. Like I play in a band now that act, uh, is having a battle of the bands in the Mexican Bonda community is very common, but we don't do anything different. It's just another gig. There just happens to be another Bonda there, which is uncommon because it's not cost effective to have two Bondas, like, like having two big bands. And so it's usually like a small group and then us, but if there's two Bondas, they always call billet as a battle of the bands. And I'm not even sure there's even a winner announced <laughs> really. I mean, it's just, and then the bands hang out afterwards. And that's what I imagine to be like, historically accurate and I wonder if that's if that's what we decide where there's the value um in that concept and I could get behind it um that maybe there's a way to reimagine what we call in the educational world a jazz festival and as Beth very hilariously points out damn near every time but it's not festive <laughs> There's absolutely nothing festive going on at this time. At this festival. Uh, and what if we found a way to like reimagine what the festivals look like to be more what Riley described? There could still be, you know, some element to engage the adolescent brains that really like sort of a goal or a prize at the end there's probably a way to do it that um i think would be a less damaging i i don't know what it is if anyone has an idea about what it would look like please holler at the beth and kelly right. show we'll help you plan it <laughs> absolutely well i think this I, I mean i think the spirit of that is 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 still part of the structure of many of these festivals but then there's also just like the you know the awards at the end of the night or whatever because right. my the things that i remember about all these festivals and i think what was the best part better than winning but again um i'm you know i come at it from a very privileged place but it's it was like hearing these bands Mm -hmm. from other parts of the country mm -hmm. being blown away by some of these musicians meeting them afterwards like those are friendships I still have today mm -hmm. and then getting to go on stage and try to one-up everything that had come before me mm -hmm. and then you know hang out and you know mm. exchange names and like these are literally still the relationships that mm -hmm. I have to this day and and I think that's like you know 
the number one beautiful thing is that it brings together kids from across the country, mm-hmm. whether it's essentially Ellington or Reno or Lionel Hampton, any all of the major over. festivals that mm-hmm. I went to growing up. Um, you could, it's such a niche thing to like jazz music as a kid, <laughs> but you find another kid who likes it as much as you and you hear them play piano and they're like, and you're like, whoa, they have listened to the same records I listen to and they also know who Count Basie is. And and then you sort of have these incredible friendships that form mm-hmm. that are miraculous because you don't feel like you're such a, you know, maybe you feel like you're a weirdo in your school or maybe you just feel like you're on your own. Um, but it's really powerful to know that there are other people who are invested in this thing too. But of course, like if we can keep all that um, but eliminate this sort of, you know, placement at the end that makes winners and losers out of it. Um, yeah, I'm all for yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I really want to solve this problem because I think it's a really big problem and I don't think it's changing. I, I see it getting even more and more um, like, deeply entrenched in educational jazz is like I swear every high school just keeps popping up with now they've got a jazz festival and uh and I don't think anyone really says anything for a couple of reasons I mean one it's nice to have opportunities for your students to play that are relatively inexpensive uh teachers like having a goal to prepare for and uh, adjudicators sure aren't going to complain. They're getting another payday and it's pretty sweet. So uh, I just feel like someone's got to say, are we sure that, are we sure that just big band, big band, big band all day playing for a panel of judges and then an award ceremony at the end and maybe even we toss in a couple of educational opportunities like master classes during lunch. Guest artist. Is that really doing what we want to have happen? Like, are we getting the outcomes that, that we want or are we just getting the outcomes that, that we think we want or that we had when we were a kid? and it worked for us. I don't know. I'm not sure this is thought about. Let's go ahead and like backtrack for a second. But it seems to me like, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I am probably the one and only orchestra teacher in the country who has consistently brought students to jazz festivals. Yes. Um, (laughs) I would say I'm the only one. I'm so I, I can speak from experience and this also applies to orchestra events that are adjudicated as well mm-hmm. but we we prepare for these things we um strategically schedule them right so like there's one in October and it's not a competition there's one in January and it is to get ready for the one that really matters to ramp up for the spring right (laughs) to ramp up for the spring ones that really matter like you know for middle school it's going to the reno jazz festival for high school it's like and we're talking local here folks who are watching from out of town but like sign up for the bellevue jazz festival so that you can get ready you're gonna you're gonna find out if you're going to ellington Mm -hmm. the next week and then you'll know you know and usually the outcome of the Bellevue Jazz Festival will tell you who's going to Ellington and it's just this you know thing so you're you're preparing for these events one after the other and you strategically do them where exactly are we taking time to truly um, have students hone the skills needed to play jazz (laughs) in this time. Because- you mean, are, are you asking, 
what is the third trumpet player learning during all of this time besides how to play their part on the three songs that you're playing like, at the yeah, festival? impeccably how to impeccably play the part of the three songs that you're going to use in your spring festival lineup so there's three songs that's what you're going to play for the spring and where are we actually spent i mean i know that there are there are teachers out there that are probably listening right now that are like i totally address creativity and composition and improv and i teach rhythm changes to every student in my right. jazz band. yeah and jazz theory and all these things there are individuals that absolutely address that but as a, a teacher who has been on the circuit okay i've been on the circuit as in the jazz festival circuit. I know there ain't time. <laughs> I know there ain't time. And I also will will say like from my my training in music ed, I was also not prepared to teach that to students. Um, so I'm just throwing that out there. Let's talk about it. <laughs> I'm gonna add one anecdote for the good of the conversation. And then I want you dudes to talk for a really long time. I left the Roosevelt Jazz Band in 1997, feeling like I was one hell of a jazz trombonist. I just won first place at all the stuff. I got into the UW Jazz Band one as a freshman. People would ask me, what kind of music do you play? Jazz? I am not a jazz musician. Right. I am a lead trombonist, which is much closer, much farther from a jazz musician than a than a classical trombonist. I mean, like I'm basically a classical trombonist who can improvise. I mean, who can interpret lines in a jazzy way. That's what I am. I am not a jazz trombonist, and I didn't even know it because I didn't know what jazz musicians did. And I went through one of the most celebrated programs in the country. Yep. Go ahead. <laughs> you, I, I mean, there's a lot, yeah, lots of, I don't know, Riley, do you have like anything burning? Cause I'll probably just like fumble my way in. Into <laughs> Let, let's fumble together. I mean, I don't. I don't know if I would agree that you weren't a jazz trombonist just because you weren't improvising. An improviser isn't improvisation the most critical component of jazz music. I wouldn't call it the most. I would call it one of. Well, I had zero of that one. <laughs> but like yeah. everyone in Duke Ellington's big band was not improvising. Okay. But they were jazz musicians. That's um, interesting. Okay. I'll take I it. Think, I think being part of an ensemble that is creating the music is, is very valid. That being said, if you have a curriculum that is built on perfecting a limited number of pieces of repertoire so that you can, you know, achieve someplace in a festival and you're missing educational opportunities so that you can achieve that goal then obviously you know there's a lot being missed every day in the band room um because i could all i could also imagine a great jazz curriculum where you know a third trumpet player still may not be improvising solos but will mm -hmm. be learning about jazz its relationship to american history what can be achieved in their part in the context of a larger ensemble um empowering them to take ownership over the role they have in that ensemble um, and giving them a really inspiring and rewarding experience. Um, even if they're not gonna go on and be a professional jazz musician, they will take the lessons of jazz music and apply it to whatever they do. Okay. Um, that I think I that would that. be the, that would be the best case scenario. And then obviously the worst case scenario is they're like a cog in a wheel for a goal that doesn't really have anything to do with them. Um, I think um, at least in this part of the country, 
we're closer to the second description. Right. I think. I'm thinking about the jazz, sorry, the trumpet three player that's sitting there in the band consistently not being given the opportunity like and then right, right. and then later on being like i want to be a professional jazz musician and um then being like on their own like dude you're on your own bro see you later yeah. and then and i mean you know, if they I, were like me i'd be like i'm gonna be i'm gonna do that myself damn it right. you know i mean and I would go do it my damn self and I would learn how to improvise by my damn self in my bedroom with my boombox, you know, mm -hmm. and that's literally, you know, that's how, how I have learned how to do what I do, which is probably not jazz. Um, and <laughs> um, it's like, how do we get around like those pigeonholed like positions how do we get around getting everybody an opportunity? Ooh, that's another thing. Oh boy. Like, okay. So if knowing our roles in a big band, it's a very celebrated idea and I tend to subscribe to it since I'm a lead player and that's what I'm good at. But if we're just, if we're like training high schoolers, right? Like you're the second player, you play the jazz chair, right? Like, are we really allowing kids to learn and develop who they might be as musicians or are we teaching to that because it suits, it's like a convenient way of viewing the tradition because it suits our needs, which are this kid plays parts and I don't have time to invest in helping them learn to improvise. And to take that a step further, this kid over here in the improv chair takes private lessons and is learning how to play those solos with their private teacher. So I'm going to depend on them. And as your teacher, that is convenient for me because I am not equipped to teach you how to do that anyway, nor do we have the time. So, uh, so I have some concerns about this idea that like, we want to learn what each chair does and like they should really learn how to do that well i i'm i'm a little suspicious of it feels a little too convenient that that's like is that really an important part of the history or are we just saying that it is because it works for our needs as big band teachers i, I mean i think like yes bottom line if if you as a, a music educator is treating your band room like an NFL depth chart, right? Like not everyone's gonna be Russell Wilson. And if you're building your entire curriculum around your Russell Wilson, like you're selling all of the kids short and you're really just revealing your own shortcomings as a music educator. I mean, and I, I like everything that's been brought up is there's so much more to unpack than we have, you know, the next 15 minutes to do. But I, I think like creating multiple entry points so that every student can learn why those roles are important and also have access to the like individual creativity. How do you improvise? Like if I did want to play the, the jazz chair, the second, the soloist chair, like how do I uh, apply myself to gain those skills? But also like, how do I take pride in my role as the third combo player, right? Like, and, and I can speak to that as like, as a member of the Westerlies, that's the fourth chair, you know, second trombone to the Westerlies. Like I'm not taking burning jazz solos, but like, I love, I love my role. I love playing yeah. bass lines. I love supporting my ensemble mates. And uh, I find a lot of creativity in that, but I think it's because I also know, like I had access to learning how to improvise. And I, you know, like all of those, like it's not at all mutually exclusive. So I think if as a band director, you're giving some kids one thing and some kids the other, like everyone's getting sold short. Um, and I think like, again, I mentioned earlier, like creating different entry points for different students and different learning styles. Like the more you're doing that and the more you're giving everybody in the band room exposure to, 
you know, every side of the, every role in the band, every, every side of what it means to be a musician and what it means to be a jazz musician, um, the more it benefits everyone, I think. And, and we're also talking about like power structures, power structures that need to be dismantled. So yes. if, if this, if the band room is perpetuating these things, then of course they need to be attacked head on if the third trumpet player is playing third trumpet because they don't have circumstances that allow them to have private lessons then that is a problem um and of course you know these the systems that we have in place are perpetuating these problems because band directors are putting the the kids that have the resources in the positions to reflect best on the band program to get the funding to keep the program alive to ultimately in a best you know looking at it with the best lens keep a music program in a school sure but, um so like i i don't but feel it, like i'm one yeah. i'm one to judge because i'm so much not a part of it but it's so wrong you know the idea that um students who don't have resources who may want to uh learn how to improve well and and also as soon as i say learn how to improvise i will say i think i i think one thing that is interesting about will and i's trajectory is the the way we teach music education is very different than the music education we were raised in i think improvisation should be like at the get-go and i think it'd be, it should be separated from genre mm -hmm. because i am an avid 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 proponent of the jazz language but i think improvisation and I think that to the question earlier about whether improvisation is the most important thing in jazz, I don't think it's the most important. I think it's one of the things, but I think improvisation is one of the most important things in music. And so if we Even can better. separate improvisation from jazz and have that be in the elementary school band, in the middle school band, in every step of the program, so that jazz is an opportunity to investigate improvisation in the context of jazz music, um, I think we would all be better for it. And maybe I'd be curious if that could help dismantle yeah. the idea that only a privileged kid who has private lessons can improvise in a jazz band context. It's, it's really, um, that's groundbreaking, you know, and I have been the recipient of your group's teaching. Um, my students have benefited from you um, you four coming into my classroom and teaching my students. And um, what you are able to do, and those of you out there listening right now, I'm telling you, get these guys into your classroom. For real. Uh, get these guys into your classroom. Um, what you were able to do through modeling and through mentorship with the students in my classroom was um, help them feel like it's actually okay to try um, and just do something, try something, make a sound um, and feel supported in that and not ridiculed. Like I think kids get this like anxiety that if they're not Coltrane, they shouldn't speak up. If they're not, you know, thus and so fancy player in the band, then they have no voice. Um, but like when you're working with, with kids, um, I've witnessed you, you know, empowering everyone and kids rising to that challenge and actually taking a stab at it, which is sometimes the, the biggest first hurdle. That is a huge first hurdle, just giving it a go. Like to stand up and do it. I love the idea of, I mean, obviously of infusing improvisation into more of our classrooms than just the jazz ones. Mm -hmm. uh, I also think that we should get jazz music into more classrooms than just the jazz band as well. Um, but I, I uh, think that it's really interesting that you mentioned that you have a different way of teaching than what you what you were given um because the model in which you learned were like the concert band and the big band right so you're you have a quartet so it has to be different i wonder in in at least in that way i wonder though um 
if if you see a, a difference in value system also um as far as um i guess where i'm going with this is you know, as previously discussed, you both came through some, uh, you know, the Washington Garfield pipeline and went to very fancy New York schools too. Uh, and, and that has a certain way of teaching and learning, right, that comes with it. Mm -hmm. And, and yet the music that you perform and write um it, at least as a part of the westerlies is very different than that and um and you're both really like creative individuals out in the music world and and i i know that we've talked a, a bit about the things that you learned in in the seattle system that have helped you with your current gigs but i wonder if there are things that you didn't learn right that you really needed and it sounds like you've identified some of them because you're using them in your teaching now and and i'm curious what those are because i think we would benefit in knowing well <laughs> i mean this doesn't apply to the high school band room but like i wish we'd have more music business classes and call it like the amount of emails and admin like we had no idea that that's what it looked like to be a professional musician like all the admin tasks admin, that aside keep, keep your bills paid yeah right right but that aside i think uh in terms of musical skills mm -hmm. for me it's been a lot of reflection on like what's made me feel really terrible like when i've had those low moments where i feel like completely inadequate and like crappy about myself as a musician and like what where does that where does that crop up and where has that cropped up in the past and like what uh what structures were in place to make me feel like I had to measure myself in a certain way or what uh you know how, how much of it is due to like the individual personalities that play versus like these the settings that we're in mm -hmm. and the metrics that we're we're told we should be measured by um and I don't know, like without getting too like, you know, she, she hippy dippy about it. Like it's been a lot of like growing up in self-reflection about like things that I value and, in music and like trying to empathize with a past, my past self and also like my past peers, you know, like trying to like see, I don't know, like I, why were there kids in the band setting two chairs down for me who were having a completely different experience from what I had when we were still like sharing this very common space. Um, why, why didn't they feel empowered in the way that I felt empowered? Um, and I think it's having had like times of feeling like crappy about myself that, that have forced me to ref reflect in that way, right? Um, and to try to like, like if I'm feeling this way now in this setting at an elite conservatory in New York, having like auditioned and gone through this whole thing and knowing all the time I put into it and like really knowing deep down inside that like I am a pretty good trombone player whatever it is like how did it feel for someone sitting next to me in the school band to be going through that same thing when they were 17 or you know like so how do I I don't know I that was a bit rambly but I guess just like how how can I make sure that they're the students that we're working with are only getting the positive experiences that I gleaned from what I was given and how are we giving them what we may not have been given which I think and I don't mean it's not like a broken record is, is like entry points mm -hmm. like how do you give people that sense of like empowerment by just being able to like get a foot in the door like, right now I can try right it. now I can do this I, mm -hmm. I can make a sound and it's valid um yeah I don't know I'm curious to hear Riley's thoughts there no, I mean, I, I think that's all spot on. Um, I, I'm, I'm grateful, you know, for the, the path that I had and, and what I was taught. So I don't often think about what I didn't get, but I do think about like, again, when I go into the classroom, what do I try to teach? And mm. some of my, like one of my favorite teaching memories I have is when I was in college, I was every summer I would go to Florida and teach these kids down there who were 
more or less concert band kids. And we would, I like stole Wayne Horvitz's conduction method and we would create pieces together. And all those kids, you know, would just rock out on this stuff. And we would do a final performance and they would like bring their sunglasses from home and like be cool jazz kids and create a composition on the spot. And I, I, I almost want to say like some of it would sound terrible and some of it would sound great, but actually like most of it, it, it all really sounded good. Like they sounded awesome and they, they mm-hmm. felt it and they knew it. Um, and that type of just like raw discovery, mm. um, there aren't a lot of places for that. There weren't a lot of places for that in, in the path that I had um, for mm-hmm. just like coming up with something from nothing and yeah. coming up with it with other students in the room. Yeah. Um, that's it's the, not that's even that. like, yeah. It's like that's the stuff we ignore when yeah. we're preparing for a festival. <laughs> I just think there's like, there's never a space to throw paint at the wall like that you can never just throw paint it always has to be like you like by the time you're bringing it to the band into the band room there's an expectation that like it's already a product or like it's something you know like you've already been working this lick out in the practice room before you even bring it into rehearsal in the band room um right yeah to riley's point just like more discovery more curiosity more more space for taking chances i think like makes everyone feel vulnerable and also comfortable with being vulnerable you know it's like and it levels a playing field like the virtuosity thing it's thrown out the window because like when you're all creating a composition together mm-hmm. there's more appreciation for all the various roles right. in and on so like that third trumpet player has a very important role when like you know if there's they got to keep the music going like if there's nothing if you're creating something from nothing like everyone's got an equal role to play that's interesting i haven't thought about I haven't thought about when, when do we get to just throw paint on the canvas in our classrooms in that I haven't thought about it in that way before. And I, and I like that we've, we have, we've removed that moment of just like pure creativity and we'll see what it turns into. It's the age old like teacher dilemma of um, I want to, but I'm not comfortable with relinquishing power. Mm-hmm. It's going to get messy. And I don't like things that seem to be out of control. And I don't like things that appear to be um, messy. You know, um, we as teachers, we have that hold on. on <laughs> we want to tighten it all up and make yeah. sure everyone's uh and it's like how do we get okay with relinquishing control you know our first inclination is like yeah maybe we'll we'll try that in the last 10 minutes of class cool yeah you know but that's a way to put it in a box like 10 minutes of messy with the rest of it militaristic precision you know Mm -hmm. how do we go into that realm where it's okay to like muck around in that paint. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and like we're lucky in that we just get to be the fun guys that like drop in and say, hey, let's create a composition and improvise and make funny noises. And then we leave, you know? So right, like, right, I, right. I, I, you like, leave. <laughs> lots of respect for the people that are in the band room every day, like trying to like teach kids how to play in tune, you know? Cause that's another whole, you know, you take that for granted. Like that's something that we, when that's already there, it's like easy to just jump in and have fun but um it's like this balance that needs to be struck between that left hand side of the artistic process you know creativity um vision um in collaboration um creation and then on the other side there's you know accountability um all of the things that you need to be a professional um in the world and you know um, technique and craft and that that type of stuff on the right hand side Kelly and I can teach that till the cows come home no problem um, but how do you strike that perfect balance of the other half of the artistic process well I think Riley is right and I would like to tie a little bow on today's show by saying that the earlier we do these messy things the better 
and uh, and more often. You yeah. know, we should be improvising ASAP. Like, get your instrument into your hand, and improvisation is the first thing we do, not the la not the thing we do after we've learned all of the technique. And right. that is Kelly's takeaway today. <laughs> You're also lucky in Seattle, you have people like Wayne Horvitz and Steve Tressler, who are, yeah. I think, just to give a yeah. shout out to them, like doing yeah. really amazing things with like trying to open the space up for improvisation in the band room. They yeah. definitely are. Yeah. Dude. Of course, let's all acknowledge that this is simply the tip of the iceberg on these topics. Like there's so much more that can be talked about. Yes. Um, and we thank Willem and Riley for their yeah. amazingness. I love you guys. Yes. Thank you for having we're, us on. It's we're so lucky. awesome to get to hang and chat with you, let alone document this conversation. Ooh. Yeah. Come on. We love you too. Thanks for having us. A million thanks to our listeners, followers, and subscribers. The support we receive monetarily and otherwise helps us to be able to spend time creating a quality product and it allows us to tap into partnerships and resources to which we wouldn't normally have access. We are stoked about the journey of learning we have ahead of us and we are delighted you've decided to join.